This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. So what have you got coming up for us today, Tegan? Well, I'll be talking about something a little taboo. Not only did we have the first loss of, oh my gosh, we've got cancer, but the second loss was, oh my gosh, we can't have sex any longer. What was that about? You'll find out in about 10 minutes' time. And I'll also be talking to someone who's trying to make care in Royal Darwin Hospital more culturally safe for Aboriginal patients. How about you? Well, I've got a story coming up in a minute or two about health inequalities, quite significant ones, and life or death inequalities between Australian electorates, something that's not been discussed in the election. Yeah, I haven't heard about that. And uh, let's return to... You haven't been on for ages, so let's talk a little <laughs> bit about what we've been reading in the journals that might be interesting. You um, first. OK, I'll go first. This is an interesting study. We've spoken about this sort of issue before, which is could severe mental health issues like schizophrenia, major depression, have a, a, an immune story behind them? In other words, there's something Im- immune going on, particularly in the brain. And there is evidence that, for example, with depression, you get infl- inflammation in the brain. And it's, it's a very complicated story, which we might return to in a future health report. Anyway, this was a study, a genetic study, looking at the association between several uh, mental health disorders, such as schizophrenia, major depression, and immune-related disorders like asthma, like ulcerative colitis, like hypothyroidism or so on. And indeed, they found an association. They found that some were associated with an increased risk of psychiatric disorders and some were with a reduced risk. Um, For example, type 1 diabetes, a reduced risk, ulcerative colitis, an increased risk. So really interesting stuff, except the way they did this study, it's very complicated, it's called Mendelian randomization. Mm. All you need to know is that they think from this study that the psychiatric problem comes first, the mental health issue comes first, and for some reason, which could be quite bizarre, the immune problem comes second. In other words, that the, the causative relationship is between the psychiatric problem going to the immune disorder. Really complicated stuff. It just shows you that we've got a lot to learn about the immune system and the brain. That feels counterintuitive, but it's funny because my thing that I want to talk about is not unrelated to that in that it involves drugs used to treat mental illness. Um, So about one in 20 Australians live with neuropathic pain, which is nerve pain. It's different to nociceptive pain, which is what you get when you've injured yourself. It's your your nerves are sending pain signals, but they're not necessarily in response to an obvious injury. And it's really frustrating and difficult to treat, especially when it's chronic. And so doctors have been prescribing a certain class of antidepressants to treat this for a couple of decades. It's a specific class called tricyclic antidepressants because there was evidence to show that they worked, but we didn't really understand why. Anyway, there's some new research by Australian scientists that's starting to show the why. And so nerve cells send pain signals around the body using something called an N-type calcium ion channel. Well, this is almost it- as complicated as Mendelian randomization. <laughs> I'm trying to explain it without um, without getting chemists on my back, explaining to me why I got it all wrong. But anyway, they've shown that these antidepressants inhibit this particular type of ion channel. And even though it's fundamental science, it's really important because tricyclic antidepressants work on nerve pain, but they're what one of the researchers described to me as promiscuous drugs, which I just 
thought was charming, mm. uh, but they hit multiple sites in the body, which means you have side effects. So what they're trying to do is use this specific uh, action that they have to narrow down and create small molecule drugs that's specific to one site and ideally are going to block this nerve pain without affecting the other types of pain that's actually really important to warn you against injury. That'll be a huge advance because the drugs are pretty crap for uh, (laughs) nerve pain at the moment, so that's a really huge issue. Now, there are many health issues off the table at the moment in the election campaign. Deaths from COVID, for example, running at a daily average of about 37. But another is the enormous disparity in the risk of dying before your time, at least in comparison to the average age at death. An analysis of Australian data on premature mortality, as it's called, has been mapped onto federal electorates. Some of the findings are as you'd expect, and some are surprising. And according to an expatriate Australian health economist at Oxford University, our lack of response contrasts with the United Kingdoms, where even the Conservative government has put in place policies to try to ameliorate this gap. Professor John Glover is Director of the Public Health Information Development Unit at Torrens University in Adelaide. And Professor Philip Clark is Director of the Health Economics Research Centre at the University of Oxford. Welcome back to the Health Report to you both. Thanks, Norman. Good to be here. John, just describe what you've found here, because these are really deaths before the age of 75. Yes, and, and as you know, despite the significant drop in this so-called premature death over the last 30 years, a 50%, a really significant, substantial drop. So in other words, the, the proportion of people dying before that, their time, in other words, before 75, has dropped by half. Yes, it's, 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 it's a great achievement with the diet changes, smoking, all sorts of things. But whereas there was a gap in, say, 1989, that the people in the, the most disadvantaged areas in Australia had a 40%, 44% higher death rate than the people in the most well-off areas, that gap has gone from 40%, 44% to now to be double. And that is whether we look at a capital city or rural areas, it, it, it's quite uh, universal across Australia. So there's this huge gap in, in who's dying earlier. Um, and so it's a paradox. Can, the gap has widened but fewer people are dying overall. Yes. And so the gap is increasingly the burden on the most disadvantaged. And we can see that even with the Commonwealth electorates, which are very large areas, and we can even see that uh, gap there between electorates, whether you look at the list out the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, the Liberal National or the Country Party, you, you can see in, in each case there are there are big gaps. So which is, the, which is which electorate does best here? Well, Bradfield on Sydney's North Shore um, has a premature death rate about 44% below the national average. And the worst in terms of performing? Across the whole country, it's Lingiari in the Northern Territory where their death rate's 2.1, 2.13 times the national rate, over double. Um, obviously, very high proportion of Aboriginal people in the Lingiari, around 40%, where it's, where it's a decimal place in, in Bradfield. But even in, 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 in within Sydney, um, the, the difference between this 44% higher in Bradfield to, to um, uh, 20% above the national rate in Lindsay in the Outer West. So that's Which is a, a liberal electorate. Yes. So it, and it, it, within both Liberal and Labor, it, those both are, are, are Liberal National Party election or coalition electorates. Yeah, they're, they're quite strong. 
when we look at some of the ALP ones, again, in the cities, um, they tend to have a, a lower base. They, they're, they're worse off at the bottom and not quite as well off at the top. But from Jagger Jagger, 24% below the right. national rate in outer Melbourne to 31% above in Adelaide, northern, northern suburbs of Adelaide. Now, Philip Clark, the... Um Britain, so what happens in Australia is that what John's presenting here is that rurality, aboriginality matter more than the political party. In other words, this maps onto where you live, outer metropolitan, rural, regional, and the percentage of aboriginal popularity of the population. But in Britain, it does map onto political party much more strongly. Yes, yes, Norman. I mean, traditionally, this analysis conducted in the 1990s showed a 70% correlation between these mortality ratios, which are exactly what John has calculated for Australia, and your proportion voting for Labor or the Conservatives, uh, which is an extremely strong correlation, which is just not evident in Australia. In Australia, what's much more the case is it's not necessarily who you vote for, but where you live and your levels of deprivation. I think, though, what has changed in the UK, of course, as you may, people may be familiar with in the last election, was the Conservatives won a lot of northern seats, traditionally known as red wall seats, and they've adopted an agenda called a sort of levelling up agenda. And so they've been very much, and central to that is very much about trying to reduce these mortality gaps. And similarly, Labor has has had a an agenda, or the British Labor Party has had an agenda to close gaps pretty much since the Blair government, where one of its first acts was to institute a wide-ranging uh, inquiry called the Archison Report into health inequalities and then trying to construct an agenda to deal with these inequalities and reduce these by using both, both evidence and policy. So do you think, Philip Clark, that you, know, you, you were originally at the University of Melbourne, that that's why it's not a huge debate in Australia politically, because it doesn't map onto political parties quite so closely? I'm not a political scientist, but I think that is definitely uh, a potential reason. What I think is also, though, an interesting trend perhaps from the United States is actually uh, the areas where Trump did best in the 2016 election were actually the areas with both the highest uh, mortality rates and those that weren't, uh, as it were, declining. So there is a potential here where you get very large inequalities for these to spill over into the way people vote. Uh, or, and uh, I think that is, again, something which political parties need to take note, not only, as I said, potentially to to, to aim to have policies to reduce these inequalities, but also because it's going to potentially impact on the, as it were, political ge geography uh, in, in future, particularly, as I said, where when you have these high rates of premature deaths, which you do have in countries such as the United States, and there is obviously concern that that will rise in Australia over time. John, we could spend a whole health report on this, but we've only got a few seconds left. What, what's the policy response here to this? I mean, closing the gap is not working that well. No, and this obviously is partly Aboriginal and partly socioeconomic, as Philip said, and we, um, I, I guess it's, it's an issue for, for, for both parties to take on. I mean, the federal government does fund this work, which is fantastic for the Department of Health. So the data are out there. There could be better data. There can always be better data. But it's really somebody working through and coming up with the way of working out how, what, what are the steps and the pathways through to, to move us on from having this inequality and then taking that through into policy. Thanks very much. What gives us insight into what a debate that's not happening? Philip Clark, who's director of the Health Economics Research Centre at the University of Oxford, Oxford, and John Glover, who's director of the Public Health Information Development Unit at Torrens University in Adelaide. And this is RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. 
when we talk about prostate cancer, the conversation is almost exclusively about men, and rightly so. They're the ones with the cancer. But no man is, as they say, an island, and the effects of cancer treatment and surgery affect not just the man who has it, but the people he lives with as well. There are the usual things that someone with cancer deals with, reactions to medicines, maybe mood changes, grief at getting a cancer diagnosis, and recovery from surgery. But because prostate cancer involves the reproductive system, treatment can involve changes to sexual function, often long-lasting and sometimes permanent. That's a big loss for the man and for his partner as well. It came as a terrible shock and really was like a bereavement. That's Susan, not her real name, given this is a delicate topic. Her husband had prostate surgery a little less than two years ago. I had been to Dr Google (laughs) and read up a bit about it and was concerned about our sex life afterwards because that had always been a large part of who we were. We were very compatible and love each other. The surgeon, who was really efficient and obviously very clever and knowledgeable, said, it can be a problem, but, you know, there's lots of things we can do. I thought, oh, well, we'll work this out. It's nearly two years now since the operation, and my husband is so distressed that that part of our life is gone. He's completely shut down in every way. I've tried to talk to him about it on many occasions and um, he's embarrassed. And a man of his generation, he's older, he doesn't like to talk about those things. So that's been really, really difficult because I couldn't understand it. I thought he didn't love me anymore. And I felt really rejected and very, very sad. For her friend, who we'll call Helen, it's been nine years. At this stage, she's resigned herself to that part of her relationship being finished forever. I had an enormous loss because when he realised his sexual life was over, he didn't want to touch me. He goes, well, I can't look at you naked or touch you because I want you. I know I can't. So I'm moving into the other room. Took 12 months, 12 months of experimenting of dreadful times together. And I just thought, not only has he got this life sentence, so do we, the women, who are young and vital. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not there yet. And this might have happened to him, but I'm in perfectly good working order. I haven't had a man touch my skin for that long. It's dreadful. It's a real, real loss. Susan and Helen say that among their groups of friends, couples in their 60s and 70s, this is a really common story prostate cancer diagnosis, the shock of processing it and undergoing treatment, a withering of intimacy between a man who is unable or unwilling to talk about it and a woman feeling frustrated and rejected. Helen and her husband did try a session or two of a peer support group led by a man who'd had prostate cancer, but they found it lacking. Susan said she and her husband weren't offered counselling at all and when she suggested seeking it out, he wasn't interested. I suggested counselling. He said, oh, no, I'm not doing counselling. No, no, no counselling. <laughs> but there's good evidence counselling can be really beneficial for couples looking to navigate life together after surviving a prostate cancer diagnosis. 
we often don't talk about sex, even with people we've been married to for a very long time or been with for a very long time. And so to suddenly have to start having conversations about an intimate part of your life when perhaps you've never discussed it before, that is really tricky. Professor Suzanne Chambers is a psycho-oncologist, a psychologist who specialises in working with prostate cancer patients. She says it's one thing to be informed about cancer treatment side effects, but experiencing them is another. And of course, with prostate cancer, it affects very intimate parts of your life. There are side effects that can be urinary problems, bowel problems, but probably the most overwhelming one is changes to erectile function, which then affects intimate relationships. But it's more than intimate relationships because it's tied up in a man's sense of masculinity and the sexuality of the couple. A bit of a refresher on the male anatomy. The prostate gland sits low in the pelvis and its job is to produce the fluid that goes into semen. If you get cancer in your prostate, treatment can involve medicines that block sex hormones to stop the cancer growing, radiation therapy or surgery, the most radical of which involves removing the entire prostate gland. All of these treatments can affect sexual function in some way. But while it's a tricky area to navigate, there are evidence-based ways to move through the psychological challenges and preserve a couple's intimate relationship. Professor Chambers. After treatment, the ideal approach would be for the couple to work on this together as a team. But it's not easy. And so it takes an attitude of playfulness and openness that can be hard to bring out of yourself, particularly when you've just gone through a diagnosis and major surgery. She says the best results come with true multidisciplinary care, a cancer treatment team that includes not just the surgeon or radiation oncologist, but allied health professionals, including ones that deal with the psychological effects of treatment and the effects on a couple. So we know how to do this. There's been lots of research into this. We know how to do this. The thing that is troublesome is when this doesn't happen and when people feel like they've been left out and they've found themselves in a difficult position and they don't know where to turn. And maybe recovery brings a different kind of intimacy than the couple used to have, but one that's still fulfilling. Reinforcing the importance of affection and cuddling and non-sexual contact that reaffirms their love and care for each other without an expectation of performance. Making sure that you find time to do the nice things in life and don't lose touch of the wonderful things that brought you together in the first place. Sometimes Professor Chambers talks to couples who tell her that sex isn't a priority for them. And that's okay too. It's not unusual and I'm not surprised by it. It's just uh, we're all different and there are many aspects to a relationship in addition to sex. But that's a conversation Susan and Helen don't feel like they ever got to have. I would really like the medical professionals to be more upfront. Not compulsory, you can't say that. But to be encouraged to have counselling. I would just be happy just to be touched quite frankly. I've got this great life and fabulous friends. I've got a lot to be grateful for. Don't think poor me for one second. But it's such a pain in the ass. 
That's Helen, whose husband had radical prostate surgery nine years ago, finishing us off there. The Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia has a helpline you can call if you need it, 1800 22 They can give advice and also put you in touch with community support groups. What do you reckon, Norman? A really important issue which doesn't get discussed enough. Nice piece. Well, another one for you. In Royal Darwin Hospital, there's a well-documented divide. The majority of the patients are Aboriginal and the majority of the healthcare providers are not. And the culture and language barriers wrapped up in this have real health implications for patients. So Vicky Kerrigan, a research in intercultural communication at the Menzies School of Health Research, has found that doctors really want to deliver good care to Aboriginal people, but they aren't always sure how to. So she and her colleagues have created a podcast that brings together common questions that healthcare workers have and put them to the experts. In this case, Aboriginal leaders. We're going to talk to Vicky in just a sec, but first let's get a sense of the podcast by taking a listen. It's called Ask the Specialist, Larakia, Tiwi and Yongyu stories to inspire better health care. Here's a snippet from the first episode. In my experience, people love talking about where they're from and where their family are, but does that question put them in a position of ease? Does that open them up to a more relaxed state? What do you want your doctor to ask you about yourself? I think to begin with to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dr Pete or Nurse Jane or whatever. How are you? Where are you from? And then share about yourself. Tell them where you're from, whether you're married, whether you've got kids, you know, if you follow football or some other sport, just so that gives them information about you before you start getting information from them because they'll feel much more comfortable with conversation than a question and answer time because we've had generational experience of authority and police coming in and asking questions. Oh, and always when you say to the patient, hello, my name's Dr Pete, what's your name? And they might say, oh, I'm John Brown. Oh, Mr Brown, how would you like me to call you? Uncle John, Mr Brown. And if that's what they say, that's what you do. That's why I always say to people, I prefer to be called Arnie Billawarra. Just the plain Billawarra is very disrespectful if it's an older person. Just about what you talked about in the doctor's comment, where are you from, where's your family, because then you will understand, oh, my God, they've travelled 600 kilometres to be here and they're here for two months without family, living in a temporary accommodation. I'm pretty sure if we were all stuck in confined space, for two weeks, we would go mad. So there needs to be that some kind of understanding built and a relationship established for that person to then say, oh, so this person is here to help me. They really want to know who I am and what I'm here for. And if I don't know what I'm here for, this is the person to ask Mm. because they really care about me. Mm. I'm not going to talk to someone if someone's just coming in to tick boxes and take my blood pressure and ask me questions and then walk off. So once you get to know someone, they open up and they trust you. You want them to respect you as the doctor that's going to help them get better, but you also have to respect them for allowing you to look after them and have trust in you that you're doing the right thing for them. 
So Vicky Kerrigan, creator of this podcast, welcome to the welcome to the health report. Tell us about the people who we just heard there. They're elders, but they're also people with really deep health sector experience. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the first person you heard was Auntie Billawara Lee, who says call me auntie, otherwise it's disrespectful. Annie Billawarra Lee is a Larrakia elder. Uh, she was one of the first Aboriginal women to be trained as a nurse um, a very long time ago. Uh, she's reviving Larrakia language. She's an educator. She's a healer. She's a traditional healer as well. And then you also heard from Ratioi Melanie Herdman, who is a Yongul leader. Uh, she has a background in health promotion and health research. Um, her work spans the political sphere to, you know, supporting ranges on country. And Ratioi is also a bilingual speaker. So there she's speaking her second language, English. Her first language is Dangul, which is a dialect of Yungulmata. I love the wording here. You've called it Ask the Specialists, which in a healthcare setting usually is referring to the doctors, but you're really kind of flipping the script. Is that intentional? Absolutely, yeah. It, it's definitely about flipping the power dynamics and saying that uh, really, if you're going to deliver patient-centered care, which has given a lot of health, a lot of lip service in the health service, then the specialists are your patients, um, especially in the Northern Territory, where, as you said at the start, the majority of people, unfortunately, who require health services are Aboriginal, and that is a result of the ongoing impact of colonisation. Uh, and so the specialists are Larrakia, Tiwi and Yungul people in this podcast and there's also an Aboriginal interpreter, Bernadette Nethercott, who um, speaks three languages um, and interprets them all. She uh, is a Creole speaker. Her original dialect and language is Barada and she also speaks English. So there are a number of specialists in there and none of them wear a white coat. So you've You've published your findings based. Uh, this is part of a, a broader research project. What are the findings that you're that you're publishing, and are they applicable to other settings? Uh, absolutely applicable to other settings. In fact, the feedback that we've received from the podcast in particular is there are people in the Northern Territory who work in the education sector and the justice sector who really actually quite like the model that the podcast was based on. So the podcast was obviously created, Ask the Specialist, was obviously created in collaboration with Aboriginal leaders. But the twist on the podcast is that I suppose it, it's based on the questions of the people who are experiencing the problems themselves. People who are experiencing the problems are the health providers who haven't actually had the opportunity to get the kind of education they require. And it's not just about learning about other cultures. It's not just about learning about other Aboriginal peoples across the Northern Territory or across Australia. It's also about trying to get to the cultural biases and the institutional and individual biases that we have. So at the heart of this, we're actually trying to get to racism. We're trying to get health providers to think and reflect on their own behaviour and their own attitudes and actually get to racism. So one of your collaborators is Alan Cass. And he's actually done previous work on cultural barriers and it has reported that it's not just between whitefellas and Aboriginal people, but sometimes Aboriginal healthcare workers, they come from a different language background or cultural background. Is that something you've looked at? 
no, not specifically with my research, but yes, absolutely. Alan Cass, who's the director of Menzies School of Health Research, where I've just I've just submitted my PhD today. In fact, <laughs> good timing. Oh my god! Yep, the relief, amazing. Yes, there are a lot of people, including there's a, an amazing researcher called Stephanie Top, who has done a lot of research with people like Dr. Sean Taylor, who's from the Torres Strait Islands, on Aboriginal health professionals in the health sector. So we do know that both Aboriginal interpreters and Aboriginal health professionals often feel culturally unsafe within the health service. And so it can be a similar experience to what the patients experience as well, which is why for me as a white person, it is really, it's up to us to work with Aboriginal peoples across the country and to change these white systems that continue to perpetuate the negative impacts of colonisation. Right. So it's cultural safety. It's not simply just awareness training. It's cultural safety. And and for those who work in the health sector, um, I don't need to tell people who work in the health sector that that's very different to awareness. Cultural safety is anti-racism. That's what we're trying to get to here. So with cultural safety, we want to change the institutions. They offer better services to those people who need the services. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you. Vicky Kerrigan studies intercultural communication at the Menzies School of Health Research in Darwin. And that's it from us at The Health Report this week. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.